0: welcome. This month's Archimedes, the evidence based section of the Archives of Diseases of Childhood. In this podcast we will look at something to do with the practice of evidence based medicine, then move on to two scenarios that have been generated by real clinicians who've had something happen maybe a few times turned it into an anonymised scenario and then take it forwards to actually investigate what's the evidence behind this, what was the best answer to the clinical question that emerges weighing all the strengths and weaknesses, the possible biases, but finally coming down with the need to actually do something. So let's get started on our journey to evidence-based joy by thinking about how we do it in practice. When we look at treatments for children's ill health we tend to be stuck in a pleasant dilemma. We normally want to use treatment to stop kids dying and make them better quicker but it's actually uncommon for children to die and and they will get better anyway. So we often end up using alternative outcome measures and we could call them proxies or surrogates or sometimes even a process measure. What is the difference between those things? Using a measure, which the study folk believe is intimately related to the outcome that we really want to assess but we can't because it's too rare or takes too long to occur, is often called a surrogate or a proxy measure. In these cases you need to demonstrate that the surrogate is strongly linked to the real outcome, that is that altering the surrogate always alters the actual outcome and it doesn't matter how you alter the surrogate, it alters the actual outcome. These phrases can also be used to describe something where you're trying to measure an intangible, something you can't really definitely get your hands on, so, so quality of life measures attempt to capture the truth of how someone's life is and how their health affects them. In this case, you're often in a state where there are a few different ways of trying to get at that intangible, so you might end up using a number of different measures and, and triangulate them all to get the truth on the thing that is unmeasured and, and often unmeasurable. Now some surrogates appear to be robust, for example looking at the amount of minimal residual disease in acute lymphoblastic leukaemia really does relate to survival. Others are not as good though. Uh, Examples from the past include those where bone mineral density to prevent fractures from osteoporosis in old people was shown to be a poor surrogate. We used fluoride for a while, it increased bone mineral density brilliantly um, but it also made the bones very fragile and increased the fracture risk. Or, for example, length of time on a ventilator, and neurodevelopmental outcome out of the neonatal period. You'd think those two should be really strongly related, but they're not so much. Now, process measure is just when we look to see what has been done. And that may or may not have any relationship with the outcome, and just doing something might have no effect. Uh, For those of you that haven't, have a look at the surgical safety checklist. That's a fascinating one where something that really did seem to actually make a meaningful difference in the way it was pushed out turned into a pointless exercise that didn't have the effect it was meant to. So it is important to know what is being measured, what you, or or more importantly, the patient really wants to know, and how the measured thing and those things you really want to know are actually related. Understanding that can get us closer to making clinical research applicable, meaningful, replicable and and usable as a user as well as a researcher. Now our first topic is on screen time in adolescence with head injuries or concussion anyway and this is from Katie McKinnon, Alexander Hunt and Katie Knight from the North Middlesex Hospital down in London. Their scenario is that that comes across the ED from time to time and it's a 14 year old who's bashed a concrete wall with her head during playing sport and a short loss of consciousness. Normal CT scan ready for discharge but returns the next day with symptoms of concussion. Her mum asks if avoiding screens from this point on would be helpful. And that leads on to a structured clinical question about limiting screen time as an intervention to improve symptom recovery in concussion. The search went out and looked at a wide range of different words to try and pull these things together including cognitive rest which is a concept that we'll come back to and then found a couple of hundred things coming down to only 14 that were useful in the end. Of those, there were 12 cohorts, one RCT and and a study that was sort of a bit irrelevant really. The RCT um, was based on this idea of cognitive rest and that comes from some of the cohorts in the first place. Some of them were moderately large, 330 odd patients, 100 or so, some of them much much smaller and they give slightly conflicting results, some of them show that when you Decrease the cognitive load, so the amount of sort of real thinking that you have to do in that period after the head injury or or with concussion symptoms, it had a, a positive association, a benefit to reducing those problems. The others seemed to show either no association or, or sometimes even a reverse association. This then led on to the idea that should we put together a bundle of testing to, to reduce cognitive load or to shorten the duration um, uh, of of symptomatology and the randomized controlled trial 88 cushion patients that were randomized between 5 or 2 days of of high levels of cognitive rest the 5 day group actually had a slower improvement in symptoms of so, so longer cognitive rest in this one showed that there was there was the disadvantage now now it's not directly screen time, much of this stuff isn't. And that sort of makes sense really because a screen is is ubiquitous and, and could be as little burden as staring at Rick and Morty, or it could be as complicated as reprogramming something in a new language that you haven't developed before. So so that's so just a screen in itself isn't really isn't really going to cut the mustard and and something about that has to be understood within much of these studies the guidelines that exist do do suggest you should avoid screens and cognitive input but but the 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 problem with that is is that is that they're based on relatively poor evidence. There are larger studies ongoing and maybe, maybe they will get us a decent answer to this question. At the moment what's the practical upshot? Well definitely avoiding them isn't going to do any problems but if you start developing symptoms then maybe it is sensible to say just rest your brain more don't don't do as much thinking processes for the next few days and hopefully that will make your concussion go away faster. Our second comes from Rachel Thompson and Bavish Taylor of the School of Medicine in Cambridge University, Cambridge in the UK. Now this covers the topic of slipped upper femoral epiphyses, Sufis. But they're now recall something slightly different. They're, they're, they're now slipped capital femoris epip, epiphysis, and they're scuffies. Uh I'm just too old, and I'm going to keep calling them a Sufi throughout this. But what the, the the situation is is that a, an 11 year old presents limping, groin pain, shows the sort of clinical features, radiography, goes, "Yep, yep, you've got a Sufi there, but you've spelled it wrong, so I'm going to call it a scuffy. Um, then 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 you've got the 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 problem on one side, but but what about the other side it is, is, there, is there a benefit? in going in and and putting a screw through the top of the other hip to stop that sliding off well well that is a good question is prophylactic fixation of the contralateral hip in a patient with a unilateral slipped up ephemeral epiphysis more effective at reducing complications than just a close follow-up and intervention if symptoms occur this is one of those situations where where the real outcome sort of Pain, slippage functional stuff many years down the line it's going to be tricky to pick up in trials the team went away and they searched pretty broadly using a wide range of descriptions of this situation, looking at prophylactic and contralateral and other side pinning, got 74 potential Hicks, included 15, dropping ones that were using archaic surgical techniques that wouldn't have relevance to the day at the moment and came back with a number of studies that gave over six or so 400 or odd cases of prophylactic pinning, many of them using a very simple approach. These, these cases were often linked into comparators where they weren't pinned and, and did show a reduced chance of other side slipping unsurprisingly it had been sort of screwed in place and low short term complication rates but they didn't have a lot on long term complication rates what they do have is follow-ups where nobody had prophylactic pinning, and see how likely is it that that was going to happen. They are mainly retrospective; they're observational, obviously, and they show around ten to fifteen percent, maybe a little bit higher, chance of slipping on the other side. They also show that the pin side, where they had been operated upon because they'd had a problem, um, they 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 had reasonable functional outcomes and some of the mm, small ones looking forwards in time didn't show anything particularly different from the other side and so 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 the argument looking at what happens if you were unprophylaxed then slipped then had a problem and they show somewhat um, uh, worsened functional outcomes is that if you put all of that sort of indirect and, and 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 Tying it all together, stuff together, you come up with the idea that that it's probably a good idea to do a prophylactic fixation on the contralateral hip because because you will reduce the chance of subsequent slip and and subsequent avascular necrosis with that. But you need to use a simple and straightforward technique in order to minimise the local complications and and hopefully with a good shared understanding of what's going on you can make that decision with the patient who may or may not want to have that sort of security versus taking the risk a bit further and knowing and coming forward with symptoms earlier so those are our cases that's our approach to how to do ebm this month and we look forward to hearing from you you can submit the instructions for authors are there on the website do drop us a line with your questions we try not to get people to do the same thing at the same time to maximize research efficiency and you too could be having your work talked about on this podcast or maybe as you might find out very soon be actually part of an interview where you too can talk about your own Archimedes and witter across the airwaves at everybody that listens so until next time Thank you very much for listening and stay tuned to the podcast feed of the Archives Seas of Childhood.